4: Hello, everybody. Hi. Uh, Oh, I am so excited today. That jazzy little tune is getting me very excited. Uh, Welcome, one and all, to the first, the absolute first premiere, as we call it in the business, episode of The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Now, where did this podcast come from? I, I don't know if you're aware that I had another podcast, An Oral History of the Office. Now, if you haven't listened to that, you should because, I mean, it's absolutely genius if if I say so myself. But what happened was we did that podcast and we had so much fun making it and getting back together with my old castmates and crew and writers and directors. The problem was we got so much good material We could not fit all of the great stuff in. That's what she said. So we decided to make another podcast. This podcast, the one right here that you're listening to right now. And this time, I am releasing all of my raw, unfiltered, full-length interviews for you to go even deeper. So let's dive in, shall we?
5: Hi, I'm Greg
4: Daniels. I was the showrunner of The Office. So, how do we begin? Well, we begin at the beginning. (laughs) That made no sense. Uh, The thing is, there is only one way to begin a podcast about The Office, and that is with Greg Daniels. Now, as some of you Office fans undoubtedly know, Greg was the creator and showrunner of the American version of The Office. But what you may not know is that before that, Greg was the showrunner and co-creator of King of the Hill. And before that, he was a writer on The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live. And see, what is so cool is that, as you'll hear momentarily, all of that experience totally shaped Greg's vision for The Office which at the time was honestly revolutionary. There was nothing like The Office on American television. I truly cannot overstate how significant Greg's role was on the show. He assembled the entire team, and he was responsible for everything, from casting to set design, production design, the shooting style. Again, all of that you're going to hear about in a minute, but the point is, he is literally the reason We're all here today. Well, maybe not you guys, but me. He's definitely the reason that I'm here. So, I'm obviously very excited to kick things off. I'm going to shut up now. Ladies and gentlemen, for our very first interview, I am proud to present Mr. Greg Daniels.
0: Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every moment. Left over from the night before. Oh. Hi, buddy. Hi. How are
4: you? Good.
5: So good to see you. Nice to see you, too. I love that uh, carved. I have a Chapel. I have an engraved plaque. That's fantastic. Do we face each other?
4: How do you like it? I think we face each other. I think we're here. This is kind of neat. It's a great room, right? Yeah. How are you? Are they recording? Yeah. We're just having a chat. <laughs> we're having a chat. Um, I've stolen a few tricks
5: over yeah, the years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We just
4: merge into
5: it. It's <laughs> Actually, like Ken Quapas.
4: You I, I, never know. There's that's no exactly, action. That's exactly <laughs> right. I learned from the best. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for inviting me. Congratulations on your podcast. Thank you so much. It's been so fun to, one, just see people. And two, to like reminisce and yeah. talk. I mean, everyone has been so generous and thoughtful and articulate. And well, that's going to change. Yeah. Here we go. I kind of figured. So yeah, I'm, I'm not talking to you about th- I'm just going to talk to you about King of the Hill. Is cool. That a, is that yes. okay? <laughs> is yes, that okay? fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before the office, what were you, what were you doing I- immediately prior to?
5: Well, um, so I had just kind of come off a very intense maybe eight years at King of the Hill. Mm -hmm. And this was the first show that I was a showrunner. And uh, that job is maybe not that widely known outside of Hollywood. It's like the director of the movie. It's very full-time, intense, start-to-finish-on-something job. So I'd come off the Simpsons and the Simpsons was really good training in many ways, but there was a lot of things I wanted to do differently because, you know, when I got to the Simpsons, it was season, the end of season four and the show was getting a little wilder kind of, and for King of the Hill, I wanted to keep it contained and realistic the whole time. and. I was very much of the opinion that you have to really start slow on a show. And just the
4: value of slowness. But come up with stories like from a simple place, not a grand idea or setup. Is that what you mean?
5: Well, like for instance, the the um pilot of King of the Hill, you know, the first couple of minutes, these guys are standing around a truck just going, Yep. Yep, you know, it's right. really <laughs> right. slow. Right. And um, you know, so I, I had come off that and You know, I was a huge fan of Seinfeld, and I wanted to get on that show. I sold them one script. I was a freelancer, but I generated a lot of stories and would pitch them, and I really thought about that show a lot. And then I went on The Simpsons instead and learned a whole bunch there, but I um, was kind of a a good student of knowing that I wanted to be a showrunner, so I would take notes and, you know write them down and i have all these scraps of things and i would develop uh, different uh theories and uh one of the theories that i had i call stuff the sausage and that theory is a great show like seinfeld is wasteful of wonderful ideas you know what i mean like they'll have a great idea and it might just turn into a couple of lines or a scene like they don't milk it and make a whole episode out of right. it right so, we tried to do that on The Office too. But uh, there was a lot of that on King of the Hill where you'd have subplots and, you know, really tried to put a lot of story
4: into an episode. What were your favorite shows? Like, what were you watching at that time?
5: Seinfeld, I loved. But part of it was when that came out, you know, it was very different and it was really on by the skin of its teeth. And if you picked up on it early, you had definitely a. This feeling of, oh, my God, here's something super funny, and if I don't watch it, it's going to be extinguished. And actually, I had, a, um, I had a meeting at ABC, and they were talking. They said, what do you like to watch? And I said, oh, I love Seinfeld. And they said something like the, that they had home improvement and that they identified that Seinfeld was going to be a threat, and they wanted to move home improvement against it and squash it. In its cradle. But they couldn't because they had this longstanding deal to run Sibs opposite uh, Seinfeld. And they were watching it kind of catch hold. And they were, they were like, as soon as they
4: could, they were going to squash it with home improvement. And I was like, <laughs> don't you dare do that, you know? <laughs> um, well, but- that's kind of what happened to us, too, by the end. Right. They they moved Grey's Anatomy against us and mm-hmm. CSI was on CBS. Like they were pulling all their big shows against us too.
5: Yeah. Well, I kept making I made a lot of Seinfeld comparisons in the beginning because um, you know, I was like, Oh, look how small that started. It's something new, it's something unique, it's funny, you know, let it grow and everything. But it turns out uh, every single producer made Seinfeld comparisons oh. if you had a show that was struggling. <laughs> <you know? laughs> no matter how good it was or how close it was to Seinfeld, uh, they had heard that argument before.
4: Right. Um, and when did you become aware? You were aware of the British version, Ricky Gervais. And-
5: uh, no. Here's what happened. Um, okay. So, so I do King of the Hill. Yeah. I go into an overall deal at 20th. And... Then when that deal expired, I started to kind of look for the next thing. And my agent, Ari Emanuel, uh, sent me a VHS cassette. And it said The Office on it. And the show was completely unknown. And I didn't watch it. And he called me like after the holidays, and he said, um, hey, I'm going to you know, send this to the next guy on my list if you don't watch it. So I said, all right, all right, hold on. I'll try and watch it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> So I popped the cassette in like at 9 p.m. or something, and I stayed up till one watching the show, and I absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing, and I couldn't even figure out how it was done, you know? it It didn't feel like scripted. It was so alive and cool. And you know how I said I was like a student? Yes. A bit of being a showrunner. So a lot of times I wanted to meet the people who I thought were doing the best work, whether or not- I figured i would ever work with them right so it was really important for me to sell a freelance episode of seinfeld so that i could work with larry david and see what was up and i identified that ricky and steven had created something amazing and i really wanted to figure it out right but i didn't i didn't really think that it was plausible that it would come to american tv or that i would get the job or whatever but i wanted to meet them and ask them about it so i met him at ben's office the and, little bungalow on the universal yeah, lot. Yeah. And it turned out that number one, they loved the Simpsons. Number two, Ricky's favorite Simpsons episode was one that I had written called Homer Badman. So we started vibing nicely. Right. And, um, you know, and I talked to them about what I saw in the show and, you know, how I would adapt it. And a lot of it came from King of the Hill being kind of realistic and slow and poignant. Um, But anyway, we got along really well. And um, so they trusted me to take over and do the adaptation. And Ben had identified a few people who he thought would be really receptive. And Kevin Riley was the front runner and he was running FX. Okay. And it seemed plausible that if anybody could take the office it would be fx or maybe hbo
4: those were like the two we were thinking about but now ben told me yeah. that hbo wasn't interested because they didn't want to do a remake correct
5: yes yes they were out of the running so fx looked pretty good but what happened was um kevin Riley left fx and took over nbc and he still wanted to do the show and i was very skeptical because everything on nbc had was multi-camera will and grace was the, their number one show, and um it did not feel at all like the office, so okay, so I started to convince myself, maybe the point of bringing the office I actually thought this was was move the ship of comedy in a direction towards something I liked more, and even if I just nudged it in that direction, maybe it would be valuable like flame out to do
4: you know on nbc (laughs) even if it failed miserably you were doing your part
5: yeah i was going to nudge network comedy or the the main ship of comedy i wanted to nudge it in a different direction um then a few things happened that were very anxiety producing for me Uh, at, at some point uh the office started to air on bbc america yes in the united states yes and it was very small ratings. Um, but <laughs> that also made me very anxious because I didn't think that it would ever air in the United States. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like I have the role to the office that Norman Lear had to All in the Family because All in the Family was an English show. Yes. But no one's ever seen the English show that <laughs> right. All in the Family is based <laughs> right. on, right? <laughs> so <laughs> Norman Lear has no points of comparison. <laughs> right. He didn't have to worry about anything. It was just like, oh, what a great, great new show you got. Right. Um. So... <laughs> That started to air, and all the cool comedy people were really into it, you know. And this was when we uh, we had already shot the pilot, so I'm jumping ahead a little bit. This was right, right. before, right before we, uh, right before we were going to air. Is when it started to come out because they wanted to like connect it, I think, to the NBC show or something.
4: Okay, yeah. I mean, I I had gotten an early DVD of it too, and it's interesting. I was one of the first people to get a DVR ah. because I felt like. Well, if I'm meeting on these shows, I need to see what's out there. Whether I like it or, or not, I should, you know, see an episode of CSI and see an episode of Will and Grace. So I just spent all my time watching. and Did you try- get a TiVo? To try- I got a TiVo. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I had watched, I had watched it at that point.
5: I have a funny TiVo story, sidebar, but. yeah. Um, so I, I got a TiVo too, and. They had an early version of the Netflix algorithm. They were like, oh, you, lo- you watch this and this and this. Right. And at the time, I was watching King of the Hill episodes just to make sure it aired properly. Um, I loved The Sopranos, so I was watching that. And then my kids were watching Dragon Tales on PBS. <laughs> <laughs> and so they tried to triangulate off those three. And, uh, and they said, you know what you'd like? Mikhail's Navy. <laughs>
4: That was the cross section <laughs> yeah. of those three shows. <laughs> I think it's kind of
0: funny. <laughs> the journey to a smoke free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. It's that simple. Order online at zyn.com. That's ZYN.com to start your new journey today with the Zyn 10 Challenge. Warning this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. The
1: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry.
4: So you sell the show to NBC. Yeah. You're running it. Yeah. And now it's time to come up with a pilot. Now, how how did you come up with the decision to keep it so close to the British version?
5: Yeah, well, that was interesting. I, ha- I went back and forth. I had um, generated a bunch of stories if I was going to do a completely original story. And when I was growing up, my dad was a businessman who had a lot of performative interests like stand-up. And he used to do a manager's meeting every year at his company where he got a Karnak hat, you know the turban, Yes. and his name is Aaron. And he would do Aranak. and my first joke writing was writing jokes for his routine, Aaronac for Aranak, for okay. yeah. And as I became a comedy writer, some very good people like Conan O'Brien wrote for him, and you know Mike Reese, a lot, a lot of good comedy writers wrote for Aaronac, <laughs> and I used that I think in the Dundies because I, I uh, Michael has a Aaronac or Karanak wig, and he does the exact same joke that was the first joke that I wrote for my dad. Um, but to, to get back to the question of what to do, so uh, so I used to do an award show at King of the Hill called The Swampies, okay. named after Swampy Marsh, who was one of our designers who went on to create Phineas and Ferb. And he had a big personality, and so we called it The Swampies, and I got those little plastic salesmen uh, trophies that are not too hard to get and I used to give those out at King of the Hill. So anyway, I thought well, the Dundee's Dundee awards would be a good, you know, pilot episode. Pilot episode. Yeah, yeah. cuz you'd sort of by giving awards to everybody, you could introduce all these different characters or whatever. But, um then I started to get worried and I didn't want to um do a, an original script that the NBC executives were going to start giving notes on, which they would have I believe, with an original script. And I was just really, I felt like the pilot was, like the challenge was, can we do something that feels like The Office and not like Will and Grace right. and not blow it, right? And I thought it was more of a producing challenge and a hiring challenge than anything else. And so ultimately, I got Kevin to say, I want to make The Office. And I said, all right, I'm going to hold you to that. The first, the pilot we're going to make is going to be very close to the, the English show. Anyway, so I made some changes to the English pilot. I added a bunch of stuff and advanced the romance a little bit, so you'd know at the end of the pilot what was going on. Right. And ultimately, in the edit room, which lasted forever, we did twenty-three cuts. I I ended up losing a bunch of stuff that (laughs) I had added, but I did. You know, there were some good things I added. Like I added that world's greatest boss mug that he bought from Spencer Gifts and a bunch of things like that. Um, Anyway.
4: But for so, you it was more about creating the world and finding yes. the team yes. and, and finding the and the cast the obviously. cast <laughs> the rhythm the yeah. dynamic yeah. um and selling that as opposed to trying to you know write a Dundee's award uh and change how the show is launched. Yeah,
5: I thought it was a huge producing challenge. And you know, and I had all those theories like the stuff to sausage and stuff and some of the theories that I had was that the show had to be handmade like, it couldn't be a factory product. And what I didn't like about network television was how much of a factory it was and how, you know, there was a writing staff and the writers wrote jokes and the jokes got passed down to the actors. And the writers and actors would always resent each other. And the writers would try and write actor-proof jokes that, you know, are, it can contain the setup and the punchline in the same line because right. they didn't ever... Trust that the actors could get laughs on behavior. So the first thing I really wanted to do was create comedy television in a different pattern so that you could get more laughs off
4: performance and not jokes. Right. I've heard, um, and people have talked about it and you've talked about it, um, that you were trying to create a, a an environment that was more like SNL where the writers and the actors there wasn't so much disconnect. Yeah. And that and that writers were performing with the actors and actors could pitch ideas to the writers. Um what I what I haven't heard before that you just said which I find so interesting that you wanted laughs to come from behavior and from actors performances yeah and 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 so you needed a writing staff that understood and had trust in the actors which is in a way kind of the reverse of how i thought about
5: it yeah well you know what they always said was the biggest laugh of all time was jack benny where he's getting mugged and the guy says your money or your life and he just like has to think about it <laughs> you know <laughs> and like to me that's great because that's not a joke right yes. just like you're bringing to bear the everything you know about the character uh, i thought those were such cooler things than uh jokes and um uh, anyway so that was like the big challenge and then also it was that format right it was mockumentary and it was very quiet and it had its rhythm and the comedy of awkwardness like you know someone's supposed to behave a certain way and they aren't yes you know what i mean and then it sinks in and and um that was certainly really hard to pull off at
4: that time yes i had a director that i worked with for a long time in theater before he always talked to me about off the beat that comedy exists Mm -hmm. off the beat so if you have an expectation of when you should respond you 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 wait a half beat you mm. do something that jars people which surprises them and i felt like that's what what you did so well on on our show well
5: surprise is really good for comedy right and to me um anything you can do to increase surprise is good and the problem to me with your multi camera shows in general was that the rhythms were so ingrained you know it was always like <laughs> yeah you know and you could kind of (laughs) just and it felt like like kabuki you know or some kind of really ritualized thing yes so there's a lot of really cool things about the office in terms of increasing surprise one of them to me is you're going for poignancy half the time you're going for something emotional so you're not aware as audience member what the goal of the moment is so you think oh. You know, oh, this is sad. This is a, you know, right. and then it's funny, and then you you're surprised, or vice versa. Yes. So, um, so the first the the pilot, we had Peter Smokler as the DP. Yes. And a lot of the hiring of the pilot for me was trying to get people who I super respected from different things that were kind of off, like not the standard sitcom. So um Allison Jones, yes. I loved Freaks and Geeks. I thought her casting was amazing. So I really wanted to get her. And then I had tried to work on Larry Sanders. I did a couple of days of punch up there. I'd identified that as something similar to to Seinfeld, like some a show that was just doing amazing stuff. And that's how we got to Ken Quapus, Yes. And um, the whole thing with Ken was wanting everybody to believe that they were working at a paper company and absorbing that and kind of taking
4: the Hollywood out of it. Well, there were so many things that you guys did. First of all, getting a soundstage as a location and choosing to put the offices in the production offices upstairs, (laughs) right? right? Because that was a real space. Yeah. And Ken and his making us be all ready to go at 7 a.m. and doing 30 minutes of just work.
5: Yeah, no, that was really uh, part of that notion of obstacles that like I – um, we discussed that a lot as well, which is uh, on a Hollywood set. And again, this is like trying not to be factory, not to be Hollywood, right? So on a Hollywood set, they make the walls wildable, which means any room you're in, you can pull the wall off so that the camera can get back and get a great shot. And our aesthetic on the office was nothing should be wildable. You You should, the obstacle of a, column in the way is subconsciously interpreted by the audience as another piece of evidence that this is actually happening that's real which makes it much more intense right because subconsciously you're like oh my god they couldn't they can't they can't quite see what's happening right so they make you lean forward yeah you're totally leaning forward and that zoom lens stuff and, and going through the blinds and going around the side and everything and there was always a debate about how much to lean into that device. And the writers often would want to do it more than the rest of the crew. <clears throat> and um one of the interesting things of being a showrunner is first and foremost, you're the head writer. You're like one of the writing staff, but you also interact with everybody else on the crew way more than the writers do. And so for instance, Phil Shea, the prop master, he's a guy that I would ask his opinion all the time and dave rogers the editor i completely relied on and i would also often bring in the accountants do you remember this yes yes i would have two different cuts downstairs and i'd bring the accountants in and i'd play it for them because i figured they were the closest we had to ordinary people but anyway so like some certain key moments the big question was how much to use that device of obstacles
4: interesting um I want to talk about the casting just a little yeah. bit. yeah. And Allison Jones, how why did you choose Allison Jones? Okay, well, um, so I did a, <clears throat> while I was at Fox, I did a pilot, uh,
5: and it it was sort of based on me growing up in New York, and yeah I, I, I considered it sort of a Seinfeld the Family show. It was like a Seinfeld family show, and I was casting right when Freaks and Geeks had been canceled. And I saw all of the kids and um a lot of them burst into tears when and they auditioned because they were so sad that their show got canceled. Oh no. And I ended up using Sam Levine in this show. But anyway, I, I got I was really into freaks and geeks and um I really liked the choices. Like she chose really funny people, but they were, you know, pretty charactery in a great, in a great way. Yeah. So when I tried to think of all of the casting directors that I could try to go to, you know, uh, I was like, I want, I want to work with her. I think she's, she'd be great. So we went into this really long casting process and we were off. For some reason we were off cycle. We were like going to be mid season. So we didn't have to compete with every single other show. And we started with, um, You know, Jim and Pam, Michael and Dwight. Those were like the Mm -hmm. ones we started with. And we saw a ton of people for Michael. And I brought in people who I'd worked with who were writers. I brought in one of the head writers of The Simpsons, Mike Reese, to try out. And this writer I knew named Chuck Tatham. And I remember taping myself on a video camera late at night doing the sides for Michael. Because I was like, I don't even know what to tell them, you know? And I did it a bunch of times. And I realized that one of the keys that I thought for people trying out for Michael was that he's thinking that if he does a good job on this documentary, maybe Jennifer Aniston will watch it. <laughs> and that's in the back of his head. That was, well, that was like my direction. <laughs> that, that was I used your to direction. Give. Yeah. And I did that from taping myself and going, oh, that's the only thing that's motivating me into something resembling this weird <laughs> performance. Right.
4: Um was there anyone that came in right away who you ultimately cast that you went, that's it? Jenna. Yeah. Jenna
5: came in and it kind of blew my mind because I didn't understand it. I I was like, she doesn't appear to be acting. She appears to simply be Pam. And I had all these weird questions for her that were like, well, you wouldn't ask an actor. I was like, where, where have you worked? What is this? You know, it was like, it was a real interview for a receptionist. There was... One part of me in trying to get an interesting love story that thought maybe it should be interracial love story. And so part of me was, I had a one version of it where Craig Robinson was Roy, not Daryl. Okay. And there was a a, a really likable actress, Erica Bettina Phillips. And I was like, well, could she be Pam? How is that going to work and everything, you know? But she was uh, a pretty easy pick. and. I felt pretty much like that about John I think too. Um there were some other good guys for John but uh not not close. And was it about the two of
4: them together?
5: Yeah, and then well the great thing also that Ken did and was really smart which is he said okay like we are not going to try and take these people in front of nbc on a little stage and have them read in front of the executives and i was completely on board with that because we would never be shooting like that that's not the right style right and what that is is a filter to get more theatrical performers who are good for multi-camera
4: who can work a room
5: yeah who work a room and come alive when they're in front of a room and, right. and project and you know are just more theatrical and so uh we got this idea to do uh screen tests like old-fashioned screen tests. And we blocked off three days and um, and we took all the different top three or four candidates for each role and we pitted them together in different improvs. And it was great for Ken too because he worked out a lot about the shooting style doing this. And it was fun for me too because I came up with lots of little improv games and could figure out things. And like, for instance, one of them was between the Jim candidates and the dwight candidates and i had dwight sitting at his desk and i said like all right the gym just bring a glass of water in a nice way to dwight and dwight be super suspicious because why is jim doing something nice right <laughs> right and it was really nice by the way of all the
4: actors because a lot of the actors gave us three days that's a of
5: shooting and so that's a long
4: audition yeah but just like everything, it, it took time. I mean, it, you cast for three months, then you did multiple days. Yeah. Well, I'm super people. methodical, I have
5: yes. to say. I, like, I feel like if I have time to make a decision, I'm going to chase down every option
4: and A, B it, and really try and, you know. And as you started to find the rest of the, the ensemble, what were you looking for there?
5: Well, part of it was different types of people, you know. And part of it was Allison having passions for people. Like, we didn't have a ton of choices for Kevin, right? She was really passionate about you and came in, and we could see it right away. And it was like, cool, that's great. And Oscar and Angela were both, you know, had come from the same improv theater. They were both I.O. guys. And Oscar has the ability, like he has such a straight face. I mean he has the ability to play it so straight, yes, and is so funny.
4: has a little Jack Benny actually, you referenced him before, it's just that. yeah
5: yeah and and the great thing was also the set informed a good bit because <clears throat> like we were all in the same room, but it was very useful to have a nook with three improv masters to have a sort of create a subplot with almost you know you needed to cut away from the what was happening in the triangle of jim pam dwight desks right and the the accounts were great for that and the other thing that was great was you guys were just making your own bits up you know <laughs>
4: we we were the star <laughs> of our own show yeah. in the corner yes. yeah yeah
5: which was hilarious and you would come to me and go hey 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 check this out and we got be, this thing going <laughs> <Yeah. clears
4: throat> i have to tell the story i um, we were the first season we shoot the basketball episode which mm. is your the first episode you wrote and, and i'm trying to bond with my boss right and i'm a huge sports fan big basketball fan and so we're doing the basketball episode and i remember i said so uh, greg are you a are you are you a big fan of basketball and you turned like kind of tilted your head slightly and said, I'm a fan of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, turned and walked away. I was well. like, that went really well, Brian. <laughs> great, great job uh, with the, it was just uh, so, <clears throat> so interesting for me that you had constructed that as being that was my an answer, environment and that, that was funny. Yeah, I mean, this,
5: yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's so sad and lame <laughs> on, on my part, but I didn't have enough brain space for sports. Right. You know what I mean? I, I marvel at people who can know all about all the the teams and it's a great thing for guys to hang out and bond with each other. Yeah. like my dad and my son are both great at it. No matter where they go, they're just, they can instantly have a cool conversation about basketball. Well, I, there's I just a, didn't have the room
4: in my head. Well, there's a theory, right? That people only have the brain space for for one of three things one is sports, two is music, and three is useless trivia. Oh, I got that. Yeah. That was
5: me on So yeah. it's one of three things. Yeah. And that's, I have yeah. useless trivia because it's yeah. not, unfortunately, it's not music and sports. <laughs> but it does help when you write Dwight because yeah. a lot of times I would, you know, I'd be like, yes, if there's one character I'm probably the closest to, it's. Fucking Dwight. <laughs> is it really? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, sometimes it felt that way. It was really easy to do all those bear runs. And like w- at one time when that, do you remember that book? Uh, what was it called? It was like a uh, worst case scenario handbook. Okay. Remember that book? No. All right. So this is a this was like a, a Christmas type, you know, novelty gift book. And it was <clears throat> it was just how do you escape from a bear? How do you escape from a burning building? You know, worst case scenario right. handbook. And Anyway, that Christmas I got like eight copies of that of that book from people. They were like, all of them were like, "This is for you. This is this is for you." So I don't know. Definitely easy to write, Dwight. But on the other hand, also I identified a lot with Michael. For instance, the Halloween episode. This notion that you would have to fire someone, but you'd want to stay friends with them—that comes from identifying with the boss in the situation, and normally you identify with the employee until you've had an experience of being a boss and then you start to go oh wait a minute maybe there's some, right, somebody right. has a point of view there right and i was the boss of the writers and so it was sort of funny because like a lot of times they would be you know rolling their eyes at me and mocking me and i was like "Yeah, you can use it for the show <laughs> <laughs> and steve used to say something like if you're in a situation where there you don't see any michael scott you're michael scott <laughs> yeah that's right that's
0: right
5: So after doing the pilot, we get a very anemic pickup of five episodes for season one. And all of my Seinfeld arguing rebounded against me because, you know, I was dancing and trying to get a a pickup and everything. And they were like, well, if it's really like Seinfeld, Seinfeld only had four episodes (laughs) or whatever in the first season. And we were like, ah. Um, So we get this little skinny pickup. And now I get the ability to hire writers. And so I love hiring writers and I read hundreds of scripts, not hundreds, but at least a hundred for each time I have to hire a staff. And I meet, you know, 20, 30 people. And in the meetings, I'm describing the show because it hasn't come out, right? Yes. And... um the more you describe it the more your thoughts start to coalesce and i and i realized as i was trying to like pitch the show over and over again to different writers that this was the first um comedy version of a reality show and it was kind of the first show and this gets maybe theoretical but like i was saying all right well sitcoms multi-camera comms are a tv show for people who love theater and have done a lot of theater and go to theater that's the idea right but now everybody has their own camcorders and what about a show for people who have taken video and are used to looking at the viewfinder and turning this cover one guy and then the other guy yes and, you know america's funniest videos like that camcorder thing had come in hard and um and reality shows so i was sort of developing this idea that The the bones of the show wouldn't be theatrical; they'd be video. And when you think about photography, and you think about the great, you know, street photographers, so much is about finding a way to look at the real world and finding beauty in what you see right in front of you by the way you compose it or your selection of subject matter, right? Or the decisive moment, or you know, stuff like that.
4: Well, Randall. Talk to me a little bit about this idea. He attributes the quote to you, Uh which is everything that makes it harder makes it better. Yeah, that's that obstacles. And the, yes. And in terms of the obstacles, and obviously a huge part of the aesthetic was the camera as a character. Yeah. How important was that to you? Oh, I think that's huge.
5: I mean, I used to give notes very differently to camera operators than most shows. Like most shows. The note is, okay, I want you to pan over here. And then on this line, I want you to you know do blah, 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 push in or whatever. And I used to only give notes to them like they were actors. I would say, okay, here's what's interesting. You've been following this story. And you know this person who's never expressed any interest in that person before, you've suddenly noticed that they are eyeing them with interest. Go for that. And some of the things we used to do with Randall... I would sometimes say, okay, the problem with this scene is you know what you're looking for. And I would have the camera operator close their eyes, and I would spin them around. And I'd say, all right, find it on action. And we'd go action, and the scene would start, and the camera guy would open his eyes, and he'd be pointing the wrong way. And he'd have to like find find what was right. interesting. Yeah, we had a bunch of tricks like that.
4: What I have said is the thing that I'm the most proud of was that Every single shot was purposeful in terms of the camera. Is the camera in the space? Are the characters aware that the camera is there? How does that make them behave? Yeah. Well, I, you know,
5: the writer's offices were near the stage. And so I would often come down and look and see stuff or get called down, which was very fun, but also kind of high stakes. Of deal because you show up, the whole crew is there, and they're they're saying, Can you look at this? This doesn't seem to be funny. Or I would look at the rehearsal and I wouldn't think it was funny. And then you only have a couple minutes to figure it out. Right. And one thing that I noticed was that camera awareness was the cause of half the times when it wasn't funny, is that we had gotten the camera awareness wrong. And we were in a situation where we should have been spying on them through blinds, but the cameras are right in everybody's face and we were expecting people to act as if they didn't know the cameras were there. Right. Or, you know, sometimes it's funnier to not spy on them and to let them be embarrassed that the cameras are seeing it. Like I was just watching that one, which one was it? I guess it was the client. Remember that one? Yep. And just the camera chased Michael he got the call being that Jan didn't want to see him while he was, he was sort of bragging the camera. And then he got this horrible call and he, he had to actually hide in the well under his desk yeah. and the camera came around and like squeezed <laughs> past and kind of <laughs> caught him there like a raccoon in the, in the light next to a garbage can. Yeah, he had right. this horrible like, away. <laughs> right, it's added so much. The camera could add so much.
4: Totally. Did you write for the camera as though it were a character? Uh,
5: yeah, sometimes for sure. I I remember Jen um Salada actually doing that the most. Like she she was the first person to have the camera like nod, you know. She okay. had I forget which episode, but she had somebody look to camera and say, Where'd he go? Or something like that. And the camera kind of like gestured. And that was kind of fun. It was it was really up to the line though. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and then the, you know, when we had that arc of jenna going to art school yes or pam going to art school we had a whole thing and it was originally i think i think it was mindy's idea or she was the biggest proponent of it but it was the idea of the boom operator getting involved and it was to me one of the coolest ideas i couldn't really figure out how to work it, and we had a version where she got mugged on a subway and the boom operator dropped or the camera operator dropped the camera and came and scared remember, her off. Do you remember I remember that. I remember that idea, yes. Yeah. Was and that in a table read even? It probably I probably was. Right. Yeah. You know what's really fun now? It's like people are talking about the show all the time. And so I got asked about it, but it's 10 years sure. ago or
4: whatever. 15.
5: 15 years ago. Yeah. And sometimes I can't remember what made it into the show or what was like a crazy table read. Right. Or what was pitched and I turned it down for obvious
4: reasons. Right. Uh, one other question just about the pilot. Do you remember how the pilot tested? I'm guessing not good. Yes. So Kevin Riley told the story that how testing happens is there's certain people who are set up in different rooms, and every room was bad. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> and, and except uh-huh. they got to the last room, which essentially were people who didn't count. Mm-hmm. But they were PAs and office assistants, mm. and young people, and they loved it. So it was like from the very beginning, that That's young. That's interesting. Yeah.
5: Well, they, uh, they said to me with the testing, they said, we're going to go out in the mall and just grab a bunch of people. You can have one question to disqualify people. And so the question I had was, if they were a fan of According to Jim, that TV show, (laughs) they were disqualified (laughs) because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do a sitcom. So I had to pick one. Oh, that's amazing. But anyway, (laughs) but I mean, I I had prepared Kevin, right? Like way before I knew this wasn't going to test well. And I, you know, I had certainly laid the ground with Kevin for that. I was like, this thing is not going to test well. It is Firmly in the pattern of Mary Tyler Moore, Cheers, Seinfeld—it's classic NBC comedy, and you know it's going to work. But don't don't worry about the testing, right? And I, you know, the I there's a uh, in this podcast room. You guys have this Cheers poster where mm-hmm. you've replaced mm-hmm. all of the Cheers characters with Office heads. One of the things that's so funny, I think, and appropriate about that is about the theme song. Because we had put a theme song on the pilot that then was grabbed by another NBC show. And really? Yes. Um, what was it? Mr. Blue Skies. Okay. That was what was on the pilot. And it was all the internal screenings. That was the theme song on the pilot. And the pilot was also called The Office, Colon, and American Workplace, which I thought was more docu, you know? And okay. that. I also kind of figured it would open us up to be able to do other an American workplace like this is I mean it, it, this didn't really apply until we got to the finale and I managed to work it in finally sure but um that was the that was the thinking
4: that you could you could do another series that was something else an American workplace or that
5: that this was just a season of a larger series called an American workplace got it like just to just to try and get more reality to the documentary thing. Because after a while, I mean, we sort of pointed it out at the end, like, why were you here for nine years? <laughs> right, <You know? laughs> but um, so I had really fun experience getting the theme song for King of the Hill, where we went out to bands and stuff, and they all submitted stuff. And we had to sort of sum up what the show was really quickly. And my line on King of the Hill was, Andy Griffith's back, and he's pissed. That was how I would sum up that show, <laughs> right? <laughs> but when we were looking for a theme song for The Office, uh, I kept referencing Cheers because I was like, "The Office is funny and poignant and original, and it has this sort of Cheersy vibe."
4: Right. Yeah. I always felt like our show that that was where its deepest roots was Cheers. Yeah. Um, the only difference was. These were people who had to show up every day, whereas Cheers they chose to show up at this particular place. Yeah, but that um, the tone of familiarity and constant interaction that that it had its ties there. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. And and
5: Cheers had a very it sort of there were moments of nobility and a lot of appreciating different character people i also used to compare it to hogan's heroes in the beginning (laughs) oh really (laughs) yeah you know because uh the staff were kind of like prisoners they were all trying to like outwit the boss kind of that was i don't think that's the main influence at all but interesting it's fun to think about it like that sometimes
4: All right, guys, we're going to pause there. We're not going to stop. We're just going to pause um, because there is so much more great stuff from Greg. You're going to hear more from him And not just one, but two future episodes. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go right now and you can listen to my interview with Rain Wilson, a.k.a. Dwight Schrute, which, as you just heard, Greg and Dwight, kind of the same person, so it makes total sense. Now, normally we're just going to put out one episode a week, but I was just too excited. I was just too excited about launching the podcast, so go now, America's sweetheart, he's never been called that, Rain Wilson. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Episode one, done. Check. I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, we will see you next week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Langley. Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode is mixed by Seth Olansky. Special thanks to the amazing production crew who recorded these interviews with us. Joanna Sokolowski, Julia Smith, Benny Spiewak, Russell Wijaya, Margaret Borchardt, Christian Bonaventura, Matthew Rosenfield, Alex Mobison, Lucy Savage, Judson Pickward, Jack Walden, Jonathan Mayer, Andrew Stephen, David Lincoln, and Saeed Ali.
0: The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin.